0: Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be discussing the use of pressure pain algometry. In short, this is a wonderful and underutilized tool that can aid clinical practice. I have been exploring its uses and applications for about two decades. Over that time, our understanding of this tool has evolved. For those who do not know, pressure pain algometry, also known as the Pressure Pain Threshold Test a.k.a. Pressure Bane Tolerance Test, or PPT, is a simple instrument-assisted pressure test that may be applied to any desired location on the body. It is intended to elicit a pain response. As increasing pressure is applied to the patient with a measurement device, the patient becomes increasingly uncomfortable. At some point, a threshold is crossed where the tolerance is exceeded, and the patient asks to discontinue testing. The examiner notes the maximum pressure achieved records that value, and now has converted the abstract quality of pain in a given structure into an objective data point, One that can be correlated with the complaint. This is its simplest application. What we do with that information next is where it gets much more interesting. So, how do we use this tool? We use this tool in three main ways. First, for examination. Second, assessment and third, for tracking and monitoring change over time. For the examination, we may choose to test an anatomical structure associated with the patient's complaint, say, an ankle sprain. This is usually at the nidus of pain. If that spot is too sensitive, an adjacent surrogate spot, a measured distance away, usually only 2 to 3 centimeters and sometimes up to 5, will suffice, at least until such time that we can test at the nidus of pain. Additionally, It is useful to perform a PPT test at the contralateral anatomical correlate, i.e. the asymptomatic, uninjured, patient-normal-slash-control side. If we want a more comprehensive survey of nervous system function, we can additionally test other regions remote to the site of complaint. During the assessment, we consider our data, and depending on how much we collected, we can determine whether or not we have a problem At the region of complaint, elsewhere, or both. In a general sense, a low threshold is abnormal. The problem is we need to know what is normal for the location tested. If we do not know and we have a contralateral area for testing, then we can compare to that value and use it as the patient normal. This allows rescaling as a percentage of normal the value obtained from the injured side. In the absence of such information, we could rely on normative data. However, this is mostly lacking due to differences in methodologies of published studies and lack of randomized selection in the body of published works. In the absence of anything else to compare to, then we are looking at how much subsequently acquired measurements differ from baseline. We expect patients to improve, so this number should be getting bigger over time, and that's pretty straightforward to understand. A more sophisticated understanding occurs when we introduce wide area testing. Even better, wide area testing compared to normative data. This allows us to begin pain phenotyping. At the most basic level, one data point only, at the of pain, we may suspect that the patient has a normal or abnormal lowered threshold because of injury. If we, as clinicians, estimate that the patient response is normal, then it is. That's all we have to go on. If we suspect the patient response is abnormal, then it is. That, too, is all we have to go on. We hope this thinking is informed by experience, but we don't always have that, especially if new in practice, new to use of this tool, or when encountering a new problem. However, chronicity matters, too, Current pain science suggests long-duration episodes of pain can sometimes lead to maladaptive central or peripheral nervous system changes. Patients may be at risk for developing peripheral or central sensitization, a.k.a. nociplastic pain. This testing allows us to begin to objectively dissect this diagnosis. And the scientific literature on pain algometry supports this observation. The idea is borrowed from quantitative sensory testing, and it allows for multiple different data points to corroborate a finding. It can even be triangulated upon with different testing modalities, lending greater validity. However, for this discussion, we'll stick with just describing qualities and applications of the pressure pain tolerance test. Pain phenotyping with use of this tool may occur in the following stratified manner progressing from the lowest to highest level of rigor. At the first level, this involves local testing only. It's good for monitoring change from baseline. It's bad for phenotyping. We're just guessing at this level. We may be right, but we can't prove it. At level two, this involves local testing plus contralateral anatomical location testing. This is good for monitoring change from baseline and it's good for rescaling as a percentage of normal so we can quantify how far below baseline we are compared to the opposite side. That way we know how much ground we have to make up. This gives us the advantage too of being able to declare objectively and quantitatively when normal is achieved, i.e. the patient threshold at least matches the opposite side. This assumes that the contralateral anatomical location is itself normal. At level 2, also this is good for generalized phenotyping for three reasons. First, we can set limits. For example, we may decide anything less than 20% compared to the opposite side represents hypersensitivity. This may be useful clinically for staging interventions or even choosing interventions. It also might allow us to decide if normal peripheral sensitization is present or if it represents pathological peripheral sensitization. Second, a contralateral measurement at the same anatomical location allows a direct comparison of change. If both the injured side and uninjured side PPT values increase in response to treatment and or over time, this suggests that a central mechanism is present. If the PPT does not increase in both, but only the injured side improves, this rules out a central mechanism. Next, direct comparisons of objective measurement data allow for the test-retest scenario. In other words, a clinically meaningful experiment, also known as an ABA study design. This is true experimental design in the clinic in real time. Some research has suggested improvements in the range of 20 to 30%, depending on the type of treatment had been delivered, signals a good prognosis for recovery. If this amount of change is observed, we have identified a phenotypic responder. If coupled with observations at both sites, as previously described, we can rule in or rule out central mechanisms. Now, this is bad for precise phenotyping for at least two reasons. First, no studies tell us if a 20% threshold is too generous or too conservative to declare hypersensitivity locally. Local hypersensitivity could represent peripheral sensitization that is normal or pathological. The 20% threshold is a somewhat arbitrary limit, one that is also likely to be dependent upon the nature of the pathoanatomical injury, chronicity, and other factors, including psychology. This threshold could easily be set at, say, 30%. Furthermore, we do not know if this represents localized peripheral sensitization beyond that expected from normal acute injury, or if it is in fact pathological. If the case is chronic, then we can suspect sensitization, but not where it is coming from, or if we have properly classified the phenotype, which leads to the next issue. Second, we cannot distinguish between cord-level interneural effects related to the contralateral side changes or effects higher up the central nervous system chain, i.e. the brain. Which would represent no subplastic change. Put it differently, we cannot distinguish accurately, for example, hyperalgesia versus allodynia. In this case, a 20 to 30% threshold compared to the opposite, uninjured side, is not normally painful, yet it is a baseline. But is it because of the normal effect of acute injury, thus expectedly hypersensitive, or is it representative of allodynia because it is demonstrably non provocative to the uninjured side? And to complicate matters, might this change with chronicity? All of this gray area exists, even though we can reasonably guess whether or not a central pain mechanism is present, we can modify our educated guess depending on chronicity, and we can reasonably estimate whether or not we are dealing with a responder-type patient. At level 3, this involves local testing plus contralateral anatomical location testing plus wide area testing remote to the site of complaint. So this is good for monitoring change from baseline and the same reasons as given before are still true. This is good for rescaling as a percentage of normal and the same reasons as given before. Again, they're still true. And it's good for generalized phenotyping for three reasons. And similar to before, we can set limits. And this allows staging interventions, classification of the nature of the problem, and deciding how the PPT values across different anatomical regions may or may not be related. For example... A sprained ankle may only be locally irritable with contralateral differences of 80%, so only 20% of the capacity of the opposite side PPT, but specific regional differences do not exist in measurement data, so this demonstrates no global effects are evident. Thus, no central mechanisms are detected. However, alternately, regional asymmetries may be detected in the presence of the main findings of injury site and contralateral side comparators. Now we have identified potentially global disturbances that represent a different phenotype, albeit one that is likely centrally modulated. The scientific literature does provide some support for this kind of observation, but it is unclear what its impacts may be. So, good generalized phenotyping. This reason we can set limits. Now, a second reason. We can directly compare changes. Same as before. The review, because this is a very important point, A contralateral measurement at the same anatomical location allows direct comparison of change. If both the injured side and uninjured side PPT values increase in response to treatment and or over time, this suggests that a central mechanism is present. If the PPT does not increase in both, but only the injured side improves, this rules out a central mechanism. However, if the regional scores also increase proportionally, This means both the original baseline scores were equally suppressed and a central mechanism was present and is improving. If this type of change is not detected then central mechanisms were not present. This is clearly supported in the scientific literature on the subject. Now a third reason. We can perform a clinically meaningful experiment. So Again, this is good for phenotyping for this reason. We could perform a clinically meaningful experiment. That's the same as before. What the wide area testing provides is a stronger design with multiple confirmatory data points. If regional asymmetries are present but do not change in response to testing and only the tested area of complaint improves in response to the intervention, we have ruled out a modifiable central effect even though regional asymmetries are present. Now, this is good to know because we can also allow for more precise phenotyping because it informs our impression of generalized wide-area threshold suppression or lack thereof, especially if we have our testing experiences to draw upon. Now, this is alternatively bad for precise phenotyping because it lacks an external set of standardized normative data to compare to. For example, a patient may have a previous denervation injury on the Opposite side, or may be missing a contralateral limb for comparison. This creates obvious problems for comparative analysis. Even without these issues, however, we can't be sure our measurements are in the ballpark, so to speak, of normal expectation for a given population. Having available an external set of data allows us to make informed decisions about our expectations. And last, at level four, This involves local testing plus contralateral anatomical location testing plus wide area testing remote to the site of complaint plus external standardized normative data for comparison. This is the holy grail clinically. When we achieve this standard, we can say with much greater certainty that we can properly phenotype the patient's experience of pain, classify whether or not they are likely to be a treatment responder, quantify their response to interventions, and determine with a different type of objective data point when they are ready for discharge. Currently, we are at level three with the basic and clinical science. That's not bad and plenty good to justify using this tool today. Also, the basic and clinical science continues to advance. Something to keep in mind too, however, is that some studies indicate that the first time the PPT is performed for a given site, the score will be higher than when a subsequent test is performed immediately after. Now, immediately after in this application may represent seconds or up to a few minutes, perhaps two or three. Thus, some authors caution that baseline testing should include four repeated measures, then toss out the first one and average the next three. Two real world observations about this are one, temporal summation is a factor in some patients, though not all, and it can definitely impact this type of testing. And second, Knowing this, even a single measure at any given site is still useful. It is better than no data. And here's why. If the first score is likely the best and we compare to the opposite side and it is lower, this represents the best possible score at that site. If the patient improves from there, we are still making a real difference. So, as a practical matter, it may not make a meaningful difference in our decision's unless repeated testing is demonstrably worse. In some cases, it will not be meaningfully different at all. If it is, then we have identified another component of the underlying neurophysiology, i.e. temporal summation. This allows fine-tuning our phenotyping and our treatments. The main takeaways from today's talk are, 1. Pressure algometry is a quick and easy method to gather reliable and valid data. This helps us gain additional insights into the nature of patient complaints. Who this starts with gathering measurement data, then determining the general pain phenotype, including broadly whether or not nociplastic pain changes are present, peripheral changes are present, or a mix of findings are present. Third, phenotypic expression characteristics include the following. There's direct measurement of the PPT at or near the nidus of pain, so we should at least as a minimum get that. And then direct measurement of the PPT at the contralateral anatomical site, also a good idea to get that, direct measurement of the PPT at remote sites regionally, this is good to include, some control points, setting limits for determining threshold of change and or different scores that might signify classification categories of irritability, and this can be useful to guide treatment decisions. And then we directly compare change over time to gauge patient progress, and this allows Classifying patient response to treatment utilizing a test retest scenario. And the basic idea here is to identify responders versus non responders via a 20 to 30% improvement criteria. And then it helps us decide when patients may be ready for modification of treatment or whether or not they're ready for discharge. Fourth, when used and interpreted correctly, pressure pain algometry can be a powerful tool in our toolbox. One that aids examination, assessment, and monitoring change over time and in response to treatment. And then last, point number five, start using it today. You will learn a lot, and the more you learn, the more people you can help. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening, and as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.